when we contemplate our spiritual path, our path of uh, awakening or uh, coming into some harmonious relationship with the world, with our life, it's very easy to um, fall into a focus on suffering or to fall into a focus on joy. And both have dangers, actually. Um, for obvious, start with the most obvious, both are partial, right? Because this life has plenty of both. But it goes a lot deeper than that. And I think if we look at that together, uh, it can really tell us something about practice, about the path, and really in a very uh, deep and general way, but deep, uh, about this, the real potential of this human experience, you know, like something about awakening, something about freedom. The emphasis on suffering is, has a certain attraction to it. For one thing, it fits with a lot of, you know, our lives have a lot of suffering in it. So when we emphasize s- stress and fear and pain, we say, yeah, I recognize that. At least we're talking about something real here. And there's um, a certain Uh, attraction to having that validated. Like, not only that there is a lot of pain, but that it's some kind of, you know, spiritual truth that there's a lot of pain in life. And what we lose sight of, of course, is that the reason for looking directly at the fact of suffering is so that we can understand the nature of our imprisonment and that some kind of uh, uh, way of being is possible that isn't so imprisoned. So there's a purpose to it. But the attraction is that it just feels so good to have that validated. Life really does suck. And we already know that. And now it's true in in capital T. And so we enter, we can enter into a relationship with pain and fear and all of the confusions and contortions of the personality that um, uh, see, it really is real. It really is real. It really is real. And our path is constantly telling us how uh, fixated and solid this human suffering is. 
we may not really be seeing the underbelly of the suffering. We may just be seeing the surface, but it sure is real. That's the sense of it. And that's attractive. Something really quite wonderful about having our worldview validated. And there's something very attractive about, let's say, overemphasizing or only talking about joy. And that, of course, is the uh, confusion of spiritual joy with pleasure and with uh, sort of emotional happiness. And then we can turn towards the spiritual path as a way out of or sort of a replacement for this crappy life that we're living. So I'm going to have heaven any minute now, or certainly when I die, or I've got a, a path that, you know, every time I go to my meditation center or my church or wherever I go, just reminds me how really, really great things are. And then there's this, uh, well, of course, it's the ultimate bypass, right? It's, I don't have to really look at how difficult, how much pain I'm feeling, how lonely and separated I feel. I don't really have to look even at the fact of my aging and imminent death because it's all groovy. And again, it's got a capital T truth to it so we can take this kind of false refuge in that way of understanding spiritual joy. And a real uh, look at relationship with uh, nearness with suffering and a real nearness with joy is absolutely essential to the path of awakening. Absolutely essential. On the side of uh, human confusion, our confusion, on the side of our loneliness and recognizing this, the side of really seeing how stressful life is for us, how this body-mind really is tensed up around all the contortions of it, this, you know, personality. If we don't see this, why would we even bother to think about that something else might be possible. We wouldn't. This is all there is. But we don't even realize how, how hard it is. We don't even realize the 
extent to which this mind is constantly preoccupied with trying to medicate the pain because we're not looking at the pain. We don't see it. So we don't see how absolutely fully taken up we are with it. Put in simple terms, if we don't know we're in prison, why try to be free? If we don't know we're hurting, why even think about an ending to the pain? We wouldn't do it. It's just so there's not only no sense of possibility, there's certainly no urgency. And given the thickness of our conditioning and our culture's conditioning, without urgency, I suggest, you know, it's kind of a hopeless situation. I mean, there's so many voices that are constantly telling us, you know, buy this product or live this way or get this relationship or do this thing, get this kind of success, and it'll be all right. Right? That's the message we get. So without some real sense of, you know, this life of getting and having and, and trying to fix and medicate is uh, itself full of dissatisfaction, of wanting and fear and this deep feeling of contingency, insecurity. If we can't face that, then there will be no urgency. There will be no sense of arousal, wholesome arousal. But it's the same with joy. If we don't recognize happiness when it's present, if we don't sense or experience and remember peace, if we don't uh, have some taste of um, ease, relational ease, ease in life, then how do we know where we're headed? How do we know what's good? How do we orient? What guides the heart? In the traditional teachings, it's a glimpse of deep, deep goodness, of deep freedom that is the marker of, of the, the deepest turning, the deepest entry into an irrevocable path of freedom. But in a much more immediate, simple, even mundane way, if we can taste a moment, let's say, of being with another person in such a way that's not driven by the craving to be seen or the, the fear of being seen. If we can enter into just a moment of peace with another, not hungry for the next thing, 
but just like this, yeah, this is really, this is really good. This is okay like this. That if we can touch this, then we know the difference, right? Otherwise, all we know is the, the, the mind of wanting. I'm with you so I can get, and I'm scared I might not get, and am I going to keep getting, and all of that. That's all we know. So without really allowing the joy, in this case it's a simple mundane joy, but it's the same all the way up. Meditative bliss, if we don't allow ourselves to experience bliss, because it's somehow contrary, seems contrary to a path that where I should be, to, you know, really knowing suffering, then how are we going to know what that, you know, what that cool, refreshing offering is? Is all we know, you know, what we can see from, you know, down here in the gutter. But I'd like to suggest there's an even, uh, perhaps deeper or more subtle, more powerful uh, reason for uh, this kind of relationship with the suffering and the joy that I'm talking about. So first, let me tell you the kind of relationship I am talking about. I'm talking about intimacy. Talking about intimacy with experience, where pain is not held apart, and where joy is not held apart. Right? To where we can really allow the big pain of you know death and deep separation and anguish and anger and the sadness of the world you know the really big stuff that we can let it all the way in and so it's like we see, it's like, you know, you have a magnifying glass or a microscope and you bring it closer to something like, let's say, just a piece of cloth turns into all these valleys of, of the fabric weave, you know, or you look at skin and it becomes this amazing, you know, terrain like that, where it's just not you couldn't slip a single piece of paper between you and it it's just right here this feeling in the belly this this emptiness this grief for the world this burning of of the loneliness or whatever that when such a thing such an experience is present 
there's a kind of a fearlessness. It's allowed. It's not grasped. We're not obsessed with it and holding on to it because this is, of course, the obsession with suffering I was just talking about. It's like, oh, now, you know, I'm going to stay in here and I'm going to really enjoy my depression. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a standing by, a standing with that still has the perspective of awareness, the clarity of awareness, the groundedness of awareness, but that just doesn't push anything away, including the big pain. You know, someone you love dies, someone you love is becoming senile, your child dies, your dearest friend is ill, your own loss of identity or career, you know, wherever it is for you, those different and many places I would suggest, at least in my life, for you, that that's how it is. And it's let all the way in. That's the kind of relationship I'm talking about. But it's also letting all the way in the sore knee, the irritation, letting all the way in the little disappointments, letting all the way in the sense of too much or occasional overwhelm, letting all the way in the frustrations with people who are not behaving the way you want them to behave and your attachment around that and you know what I'm saying? So it's like, what's that really like? So you sit down to meditate, whether you're in dialogue or you're on your own, And it's a time without distraction when you say, oh, how is it really? Really? How is it really? You know? And it's that sense of the texture of experience in all of the mundane suffering as well. Nothing is held apart, the big or the small. But it's the same thing with the joy. So with the joy, I'll start with the small stuff because it's a little easier because we might recognize it. You know, it might be a little bit more a friendly uh, little sister here that we can say, oh, yeah, I know that one. Right. So I'm not talking about emotional happiness, though. But when there is happiness, we allow underneath the sense of ease that comes with that, the sense of the body letting go, right? Or in that moment, let's say, with a child, uh, someone we love, let's say, and there's this sense of just, oh, this is great, and we look, and in, I'm saying in meditation only because we're not so distracted, But this is always, right? So we look and we say, oh, yeah. We look underneath that and there's this deep sense of goodwill. We touch the deeper goodwill, not the personalized, that kid. You understand? It's a really important difference. So how close can we allow that? How intimate can we be 
with that aspect of joy? How intimate can we be with the the good feelings that come with giving freely, giving of our time, giving of our care, doing our best, the good feelings that come with doing our best, feeling that comes with maybe it's a sense of with discipline, or it comes with a sense of the persistence, or it comes with you know, any of these really fine qualities that are part for each of us of our everyday lives. And to touch underneath, and again, the same microscope that knows and is intimate with what's kind of crappy is also intimate with what is sweet. And we allow it. And it's right here. It's right here. You couldn't put anything in between. There's just no distance. And you allow it totally in, completely. And there are times Sometimes, for some of us, very far apart, very infrequent. For some of us who are maybe have certain grace in this life, you know, they're more frequent. Of touching some moment of a deeper peace or a wider understanding where the heart is, you know, uh, stable in being open for that moment. There are times that can be touched of a genuine, um, you know, just a clear horizon, un, you know, um, perturbed by the confusions and the kind of hard habits of the mind. And there are times of genuine bliss. Those are more rare for us. You know, we live such a frantic life. Those moments are, for most of us, very rare. But they're not inaccessible. And with this, are we willing to let that in? Are we willing to touch and be touched intimately? No distance. By that quality of deep spiritual joy. And there's, you know, just as the sort of the everyday uh, uh, raggedness of life. Can you sense the continuity between that raggedness and the really, really deep suffering? You know, it's like same thing but worse. You know what I'm saying? It's like stress, tension, isolation, fear, physical pain that comes with emotional pain. You know, so you can t- you, there's like a certain 
a continuity, even though it seems if you just take one and the other, but you know, we could maybe make this sort of scale that says, oh yeah, I see the connection. I see that this is, I can, I can sense the really um, horrible pain uh, having this connection with the everyday, you know, discomforts and so on. It's the same thing with the joy. If we can touch and be touched by these everyday, you know, the joy that's behind the joy, the happiness behind the happiness, you know, the non-personalized, non-sticky aspects of, for example, can be a very personal love, you know, for let's say a partner or spouse or for a, a good friend. And we look behind that and we see all of the acts of generosity that we offer to this person. We see all of the genuine compassion for this person. And, and it's just not personalized. And so then we touch that joy, right, underneath or we touch the quiet joy in nature where it's easy to, easier to depersonalize. But not just sense pleasure, right? Talk about the peace. Talk about the stability of mind. Talk about the availability to the senses, not the attachment to them. So if we can touch that, then it begins to give us access to just a, um, like a fragrance. And then we find that even without an event, a beautiful event in nature, a lovely person, but just in awareness itself, we can touch what vibrates in being awake just the sheer clarity of mind. One can sense this if one knows to turn towards it, to look for it. And in sensing this, in sensing that in the mindfulness, in the mindfulness itself is a kind of a brightness, a scintillating quality of awareness, and that this awareness is not distant, it's just here as part of being conscious if we know how to look. And it has a quality of joy in it. It's not separate from it. It's not like a, an emotion. It's not like a separate thing. It's part of being awake. And we begin to smell that. It's on the wind, you know? It's a continuous thread all the way up to the big joy. It's not a separate thing, just like the suffering and the pain and the sorrow and the loneliness and the fear. It's all there. This points us towards a life of intimacy with all of it intimacy with the joy and intimacy with 
the suffering. The intimacy with the suffering is, of course, also our source of compassion. We know our suffering, and we know the suffering of others. Intimacy with the suffering is also our connection with this urgency. You know, we're not dulling ourselves to this life, which is so easy to do, especially in an affluent society like ours. So we're cutting through the social norm that says, don't look, cover it up, buy this, do this. And we're also on the side of the intimacy with the joy, getting the uh, reward, the rewards that come with the experience of peace, the coolness, the energy, the wholesome energy that comes, this refreshment that comes with that that kind of spiritual happiness. To cut ourselves off in any way from any of it, anywhere along the spectrum of human experience, is to rend, you know, the bond of being with life, being in the moment, being, uh, you might say, uh, contiguous or adjacent to or with or part of the totality. So how much do we want to dull ourselves? Most of us have probably made a connection with dulling ourselves by alcohol and drugs as being something that that's not going to be part of my path, right? But what else do we dull ourselves with, you know? and how do we let that go? And some of these things are really obvious, some aren't. You know, we dull ourselves just with endless habitual thoughts. What do you think all those thoughts are doing? They're keeping us distant from how things actually are. The joy and the sorrow. It's like, okay, you know, I'll just keep running over this pop song and life will be at a distance, you know? I'll keep my internet thing going and everything will I'll be at a distance, you know? So, what we begin to see is that looking at where there's this intimacy, where there's this distancing, is nothing other than looking at what is a path, right? It's how do I live, you understand? How do I live? How do I, how do I engage with my job? 
How do I engage harmoniously, harmoniously to this sense of really being with, with my neighbors and my friends and my housemates? Because if I'm going to really have this sense of uh, intimacy with experience, do you think that I could treat my housemate harshly, cruelly? Could I lie? You know, could I connive? How painful would that be? To be conniving and awake. Ouch! Right? So we're beginning to look at real concrete things of how we live, how we behave. It's not an abstract thing. Clearly, you know, harming beings is a painful thing to do. It cuts us off from their pain, so we're cut off from the suffering. Such acts cut us off from the joy by virtue of the tension and stress associated with harming, harming with our words, not just with guns, harming with our you know, thoughts of, you know. So, beginning to look at training the mind, as well as how we live. How do we train the mind? How do we train the mind in such a way that it's training towards intimacy? Training towards proximity with everything. And all of a sudden, you know, practices that we talk about all the time have a language that might be a helpful language. It's a language of intimacy, a language of being with mindfulness. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness isn't just sort of paying attention to something. Mindfulness is exactly that adjacency. You know, there's no space. It's just all right there. You know? It's true. Right? So you can be mindful of the breath, and it's sort of like, you know, I'm kind of watching my breath, and it's somewhere out in, it's on Mars and I'm on Venus, but I'm watching the breath through my telescope, and it's not a very good one. But you know, when you really allow even the breath, this funny little silly thing, this breath, to be intimate, it reveals so much. Can I be intimate with the position of my body, my posture? Can I be intimate with this? And when the mind settles, when sati, mindfulness, is really, has this sense of proximity, wow! I mean, the every single experience becomes um, uh, the word that comes up is huge like almost like large physically large like the breath becomes really fills the whole field of attention or the body there's just nothing else you know and concentration comes and it just really 
you know, kind of expands out. So we see that the mindfulness, the concentration, this quality of investigation, is uh, enabling uh, a being with experience in this very near way. And to top it off, it's a very common way of defining wisdom as seeing things as they actually are. I kind of like it. It's very general. It may leave some particular things undefined that you want to have defined when you think of wisdom, but it's kind of good, you know, it's kind of useful to say, yeah, seeing things as they actually are and all that comes with that. Perhaps peace and perhaps some predictive ability, I don't know. But if we just take that simple definition and we see that seeing things as they actually are is naturally going to grow out of the the clarity and stability and unsullied vision of intimacy with the experience, you know? It's like with getting back to the sort of the magnifying glass or the microscope on the skin. You know, you get to see the jungle of your arm hair the way it really is, because there it is, there's nothing in between. You get to see the breath, well, That doesn't sound so exciting. And then you realize, wow, it's completely impermanent. And my God, there's nothing there except process. And then you look at the mind that's looking at the body or looking at the breath or the mind that's looking at itself, and there's nothing there. And the attachments that have been so important to us, the whole fixing of the personality falls apart in a minute. Right? These are the kinds of things that we're talking about. We talk about wisdom, seeing things as they actually are. Do we see the permanent as impermanent, the impermanent as permanent, stuff like that? I don't want to go into it. But the point is that when we're actually right here with experience, the facade just doesn't hold up. The facade of everything that's so important about my life And so we can live this life in a different way. You know, it's a different quality that comes. I'll close by relating our 
relational meditation practice to our individual meditation practice and how this can support just what I'm talking about. In the simplicity of internal practice, fewer, shall we say, distractions, the mind can just attend to certain things, and perhaps with some good support, some skill, some training, some conditioning from our past, perhaps, Perhaps there's moments of great clarity, great intimacy with experience, a kind of a seeing through, and something lets go. And so the, uh, it's that, it's that very simplicity that allows uh, us to get close to experience. It's not so noisy. We're not so distracted. The mind can begin to settle. The mindfulness can be strong. The investigation, the energy grows. Perhaps we sense the joy, the tranquility, the concentration can get strong enough balance and equanimity of mind, and we can come to see things as they are. Okay. In relational practice, however, it's already far more complex. Being with even one other person is unfathomably complex. It's really quite remarkable. And so we don't have that gift. We don't have the gift. We may have, on retreat, we may have the gift of relative simplicity that, let's say, everyone at the retreat is also practicing with us, and we can trust that, and that's different than going out to our lives where people aren't practicing. We have that simplicity. And we have the other supports of retreat, whether it's the teacher or the food that's being prepared. You know, we don't have our jobs. It's a lot simpler. But still, just opening our eyes, there's another person in front of us. And oh my God, maybe it's not so simple. What now? But what we do have in meditating with another is this outer reference point of awareness. In in intrapersonal practice, we have the inner reference point of awareness once we learn to locate it, once we know what mindfulness is, once we can touch, oh, here's, here's the moment. This is what it feels like to be here. 
and we touch that, and that becomes a reference point. With whatever thoughts we have, with whatever confusions, we begin to recognize awareness. In interpersonal practice, there's also another being there. And so if we get unstable, they may be stable in that moment. And so there can be this mutual stabilizing process. So in that, in this, perhaps this is exactly the balance that we need to remain proximate with suffering. We can bear it. We can stabilize next to it. The little suffering, the big suffering. We can rest perhaps in the care, the compassion, the kindness, and just the stability of another. But let's not forget the joy. Can we, in relational practice, also stabilize in the joy? Can we recognize what's bright, what's awake, what's beautiful? Because there's another. Can we catch that fragrance that might have been too faint all by myself in here? Can we touch what is beautiful, really? What is peaceful, what is clear, what is alive? Because there's this gift of another to help us recognize it. It's a kind of a magnifying of, like of the energy of love, right? It's like, this is, and we don't have to be far from it. We don't have to fear it. Of course, it doesn't mean we won't fear it, because it does threaten us. It threatens our whole life of pain. But it's the most beautiful threat you know, so it doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's easy. But uh, it's, it's wonderful that we have this as part of our path of practice to help locate and rest in that quality of intimacy with the joy, as well as intimacy with the suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.